Well, good morning. This morning, uh, I get the opportunity to finish uh, the book of Jonah, this series we're in. We've been here for five weeks. This is week number six, and we're ready to just finish up the book this morning. I'm excited for that. I'm a little bit fearful of that. Um, This book has been messing with me. This week it has been messing with me. God has been speaking to me through that. So I'm excited to share those things with you this morning. I want to start with just a story. Um, It's about one of my kids. I'm not going to tell which kid other than to say it's not Carson. (laughs) It's going to sound like Carson um, otherwise. Um, (laughs) But it it isn't. Uh, This this story, uh, it happened... Shal and I were sitting in our basement, and I don't know what was happening, but we were, we were chatting or something, and we heard a sound upstairs, like a crash. And then we heard crying, and when you're a parent, you get used to, like, the different kinds of crying. Um, you, hear, you hear the, like, the I'm about to kill my sibling or get killed by my sibling cry, you know that one. Um, and you have like the, well, I don't, I'm not really hurt, but I want someone to come pay attention to me cry. And you have the, I'm actually a little bit hurt and I actually need a little bit of attention cry. This was none of those. This was the, oh my goodness, why is my arm over there cry? And so we look at each other and we run upstairs and we get there and we find this just cute three-year-old sitting in a heap on the floor, screaming and bawling. They're trying to make sure, figure out who it is. Um, and, uh, and, and so good parents that we are, we want, run right up to her and, and we say, what's going on? Are you hurt? You know, we're looking for the blood. All the arms and legs are in the right places, so we know it wasn't that. You know, looking for head injuries and what's going on? And just wailing. And we finally get her to answer, what's wrong? And she's, she's you know, dressed, she's got a cape on. We say, what's wrong? And she says, And I climbed up on the chair, and I jumped off, and I can't fly, and back to tears. And, and so she, she was just, she was having a really awesome pity party for the fact that you, when you put on a cape, it does not give you flying powers, which at three years old is pretty devastating. I try not to think about it. It still is a little devastating to me that that doesn't work. Um, and so... But it, it was a world-class three-year-old pity party as far as pity parties go. And this morning, we're going to enter into Jonah, the adult male's world-class three-year-old pity party. And so uh, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Um, if you want to turn to it in the red Bible around you, it's uh, page 845. You can look it up on a digital device. Uh, it won't be up on the screen, but I would encourage you to find it some way around you. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a gourd and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the gourd. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the gourd so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Now introduce the pity party. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this gourd, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And if you turn the page, we'll finish up the... Okay, that's how it ends, I guess. And also many animals. The end. Um, kind of a weird ending, and we're, we'll deal with that here this morning. What, what's going on that the, the final piece of this... This prophetic book is, and also many animals, question mark. So we find Jonah here in the midst of his, his pity party. He isn't happy. He's not like rejoicing in the repentance of Nineveh, 120,000 people. He's not pleased that he has decided to obey the Lord and go to Nineveh and preach repentance. None of those things make him happy. What does make him happy is his gourd from the Lord. And just quick thing, at lunchtime today, practice saying that with whoever you're eating with because it's fun to say, gourd from the Lord. Um, he, he, he has this gourd from the Lord, this plant that grows up, and he's really happy that it provides shade for him. And then God causes it to, to die and wither away, and his whole life is over. In fact, he states twice that he wishes his life was actually over because the gourd from the Lord is gone. And so we find Jonah in this pity party uh, that, that is just showing us what has been fairly true of most of this book, is that Jonah's world is all about Jonah. His view of the world is really small. He's not concerned with whatever happened in Nineveh. He's concerned that the gourd from the Lord has left and he has no shade, and it's a hot day. It doesn't start out as a pity party in verse 5, though. It's, it's not, it doesn't just start with, with Jonah saying, I, I wish I was dead. It starts with him leaving the city to go and watch what will happen. The history of the Assyrians, the, the Ninevites, would have been that they were some of the most brutal people on the planet to have existed at that point. Uh, they, they would, when they would attack, they attacked with the intention of destruction. They annihilated people. They were incredibly, incredibly brutal. And so when Jonah leaves the city and goes to wait, I, I think his thought process was something along the lines of, okay, God, I obeyed, I went, and I, I preached repentance and all that good stuff. And they repented, and that's really great, I guess, because you're a loving God or whatever. But I'm going to go over here and watch because now it's time for you to, like, bring the thunder. I, like, you know, maybe, maybe a fireball and then the Jericho thing where it collapses. And then I know the Red Sea isn't here, but maybe open it up and bring it here and swallow them. It'll be awesome. A couple plagues. And so Jonah's waiting to see what will happen. Because Jonah thinks Nineveh deserves vengeful justice. 
And so he, that's what he's still hoping for. He wants them to get what they have earned with who they've been. And it's at this point, as Jonah's waiting to see what God's going to do, it's at this point that God sends the gourd. And Jonah enjoys it. And then it dies. And the pity party just gets roaring. And God speaks into Jonah's pity party in verse 10. Uh, he, he essentially says, Jonah, you care about your plant. I care about people. Jonah, your life rises and falls on this thing that you have nothing to do with. You didn't grow it. It wasn't in your garden. You didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. I caused it to grow. I caused it to die. But your whole world is wrapped up in this plant, this gourd from the Lord. But I created the Ninevites in my image, and I love them. I have to care about them because I love them. And the many animals also. Uh, We're trying to figure out what that's about here. So we often can use the book of Jonah to instill guilt, to like, to make us feel bad about the, the things we do or don't do to follow God. We can use the book of Jonah to say, if you don't listen to God and obey his command, then he will send a metaphorical fish to metaphorically swallow you and swim around in the ocean for three metaphorical days before he metaphorically vomits you onto the land, and then you'll go do the thing he told you to do anyways. And we can make ourselves feel really bad that like, well, you better just obey God from the get-go because metaphorically speaking, most of us would like to not have fish guts be a normal part of most of our lives at least. Maybe a little bit, but not a lot bit. And, and so we can use the book of Jonah that way, but it's probably not the way the book of Jonah was meant to be talked about or read. Jonah is a prophet, and the prophet's job was to come and announce hard truths to the religious people of the day. So Jonah came to say hard truths to the people of Israel. Jonah's trying to, to, to provoke them to ask themselves, what ways have we betrayed God, and in what ways should we be serving him instead? So what's the ultimate reaction Jonah's looking for? If Jonah represents Israel, if that's his role in this book is to, to be Israel, then the Israelites wanted justice against their enemies. And God, in the midst of their desire for vengeance, says, I love your enemies. So maybe the whole book is a question to Israel. Maybe it's the question asking, are you going to hold out for vengeance? Or are you going to love and bless your enemies because God loves and blesses your enemies? So I'm left with the question, what do I do with my enemies? We are left with that question. And the way the world works is that we tend to paint a caricature of our enemies, right? Those paintings with the, like, outlandish feature um, that, that people like to pay $15 and get their airbrush name on it um, on boardwalks. That's what we do to our enemies. We paint this, like, we try and focus in on their worst trait and magnify it. Um, I, I've heard it said lots of times, I don't remember who originally uh, told it to me, but we tend to focus um, on our best intentions 
while we focus on our enemy's worst behaviors. So we define ourselves by our best intentions and we define our enemies by their worst behaviors. And the theme of this, this, this weekend in a lot of Kansas has been college basketball. Sorry, Wildcat fans, I was just pulling for you. Um, tonight, it's our turn as Jayhawk fans. And I love, I love cheering for the Jayhawks. Um, I've cheered for them since I was a little kid. And I define my Jayhawk fandom um, in, in the terms that I like to think about it, that all Jayhawk fans just really love the Jayhawks and, and rooting for them and cheering them on to victory and Allen Fieldhouse and the chant and all that good stuff. And then anytime I hear a story of a Jayhawk fan who does something a little out of line, I assume that they, like, were sick that day or, like, their dog just got, like, hit by a car and it was really traumatic and then somebody was really mean to them and they just acted out a little bit. But they're really a good person at heart. Now, meanwhile, Jayhawk fans have an enemy. Justin, I love you. Um, the Missouri Tigers. He's a Missouri Tiger fan, and I, I do love him. Um, he's helped me recover a bit from some of my anger at my enemies. The Missouri Tigers, however, are the enemy of the Jayhawks, and I cannot ascribe to them any good intention. If I hear a bad thing about a single Missouri Tiger fan or anyone who's ever, like, read the word Missouri, I assume that they define every Missouri Tiger fan, that they're all that kind of horrible. None of them have a single good intention. No joke, when I drive through Missouri and hit Columbia, I try and hold my breath as long as possible to take as few breaths of that air, because I figure it's probably infectious or something. Um, I love you, Justin. I do. (laughs) But this is what we do with our enemies. We make a caricature and then we ascribe all the worst things onto them as true of them, but hold out best intentions for us. And it's fun to talk about it with college sports, but it works in our neighborhoods too. Last summer, I got the chance to take a bunch of students to Thailand and When I came home, I was jet-lagged and hadn't seen my family in a week and a half or two weeks. And so my yard, normally I keep perfect care of it. But this last summer, it got a little tall, give or take. We lost Langley for a while in it. Um, In my head, though, I was still being a really good good neighbor because my intention was to be a good neighbor and to take good care of my yard and to keep it mowed and get it back to looking nice. That was my intention. It hadn't really happened. But I knew my intention was good, and so I didn't see anything wrong with it. I got it mowed eventually. It took like four times mowing it in a row, but it got done. Then the fall hits, and we have an empty house on our block. And my tree is one of the first ones to lose all its leaves, so I go out there and I get it mowed up and raked up, and uh, my yard looks really nice, and it's ready for winter. And the empty house, it's the last one to lose its leaves. <laughs> She's heard me complain. And, and when, when it loses its leaves, no one lives there, and so you know what happens? Those wonderful Kansas winds come, and they take a whole tree of leaves, and they say, oh, it's fun in this yard, it's better in Jesse's yard. And they move over there, And I ascribe all the worst to this person who 
I, I've never met. No one's lived there since we moved into our house. But I ascribe the worst to them because they don't care about the neighborhood. They don't want to be a good neighbor. They don't want to take care of their yard. That's kind of unfair of me to do to my enemy. But this is what we do as humans. We build this caricature of our enemies and then we wait for their destruction. And this is what God is speaking into with Jonah. He's saying, I care about those people. I'm not going to build a caricature. I'm not going to give in to your desire for vengeance because I love them. And then he says, and also many animals. And the animals, I think they're just representative of creation as a whole. And the God who has created all things is also looking forward. And his goal isn't just relationship with Israel and their redemption. And it's not with just Israel and Assyria and the Ninevites. It's not with just humanity. God's looking forward and he's saying, my goal is to redeem and restore all of creation to complete and total glory to the way it is intended to be. And so he says, if I destroy Nineveh, my creation gets destroyed, not just the people but the animals, and they're my creation too, and they're going to be part of recreation to glory to when all things are made right. So are you going to be like Jonah and sit outside the city waiting for your enemy to burn and be destroyed? Or are you going to capture something of God's heart and love for your enemies? Brian Zond, who's one of my, one of the people, he's an author and pastor in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's also a part of the program I'm, I'm in right now for school. He says the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. So you'd say if you want to say you love God, then you've got to show it by loving your neighbor, right? The greatest commandment is love God. The second is like it, love your neighbor. But if you say you love your neighbor, then you better show it by loving your enemy. It's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this story of Jonah, mercy trumps judgment. Mercy and grace reign supreme. In the kingdom of God, the currency is mercy and grace, not judgment. People don't get what they deserve, our enemies included. It's really good news because we don't get what we deserve and we celebrate that. But neither do our enemies. So what is your heart like today? What breaks your heart? Is it the gourd from the Lord that you have no control over but causes you to to lose it when something goes wrong with it? Or is it the people who God says don't know their left hand from their right? They're completely lost. But God's heart breaks for those people. What breaks your heart this morning? We're going to finish the book of Jonah uh, by by moving uh, to Jesus. And so if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, page 891. Jesus shares just a little tiny bit about about Jonah that we have recorded here in the book of Matthew. 
Verse 38, it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says that if you understand the sign of Jonah, then you understand what he is doing. And the sign of Jonah has everything to do with with a natural order that God has has put into place. We're we're about to to bear the fruit of it right now um, in in our area. And that is, we suffer and we live through winter and death and that things turn brown and that nothing's alive anymore. But we know every winter that spring comes and life comes with it. This last week, my wife and I were on a walk and we walked by these trees right out here at the corner of the church. I just looked up and I saw all the buds on these trees. And I know that in the next week or two, these trees are just going to be beautiful. As, as they bloom and they, they have flowers all over them, and that's happening all over. And that the natural order thing, of things is that death gives way to life. And this is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about, is that he is going to enter into death, but death gives way to life. Resurrection is happening. Lent lets us ask ourselves, what do I need to let die so that I can really live? Uh, Richard Rohr says that when we ask ourselves that question, this is kind of the place he came to as an answer. He said, we all had to face the embarrassing truth that we ourselves are our primary problem. Our greatest temptation is to try to change other people instead of ourselves. Jesus allowed himself to be transformed and thus transformed others. So the sign of Jonah means that we can face our darkness and God will be there in all of it, in the relationships, in the secret things we carry around, in the things we don't think that we can get through. The sign of Jonah says that Jesus is in those places with us and that he will bring resurrection, that he will bring life because death leads to life. It says that we don't have to just keep going and trying to make it one more day and trying to make it one more day. God says that we can face it and find out that his grace and his mercy are present, even in whatever our that is, even in whatever the death we need to face is. Jonah, he teaches us that you can run, but you can't hide. No, that's not what he teaches us. He teaches us that you can run, but that God will be in whatever place you run to. Psalm 139, um, it it says that even if you run to the far side of the sea, even in that place, God's right hand will be with you, and his love will be present with you. It says even that if, if you go into the darkest depths, those depths will not be dark to him. 
because he is light and he is there. That there's no place you can run that God cannot come with you. And this is the sign of Jonah. That death gives way to life because God enters death. And then he's resurrecting out of that death. So we have to be really careful not to get caught up in all our own stuff and miss what God is doing. We have to head through death so that God can bring life. And we can pray the prayer, God, give me a mission for your kingdom and for your glory. Because as we experience resurrection, that's what the purpose of it is. Is that we find life and get to draw other people into that life with Jesus. I've been a part of Journey for eight and a half years. And I've experienced this church as a place that tries imperfectly, but tries really hard to mirror this mercy and grace. And so... I would offer you this morning that if there's places in your life that you know you need to go through death so that God can do resurrection, so that God can bring life, that this is a safe place to do that. Any of the staff would talk and pray with you, any of the elders. I would guess someone in your row would sit with you, would pray with you, would cry with you, would be the presence of God with you through that place and walk with you towards resurrection and new life that God wants to bring. Palm Sunday, Jesus enters and the people shout, Hosanna. And they didn't know what they wanted, but they shouted Hosanna, and that was the right word to shout, because, right, it means God save us. And so for the next five days, as we head towards Good Friday, I would invite you to shout, to cry out to God, Hosanna, God, come and save me. What needs to die? What needs to be buried so God can bring new life and resurrection in your life? Don't run from it. Don't attempt to, like, get past it. Go into it, and God will be with you, and he will bring life out of it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your grace and mercy are greater than our ability to run. God, and I pray this morning, God, that we would be people who trust in your goodness and that allow you um, to bring new life out of the death we experience. God, for those that are facing death in big, hard, scary ways right now, God, I pray that you would be so present with them as we sing these songs. God, I pray that the people around them would communicate your goodness to them. God, thank you Um, that resurrection is real. Um, And that you are at work doing that even this morning. In your name we pray.